Hey folks, we're back here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Ann Zink, the Chief Medical Officer for the State of Alaska. Hello, Dr. Zink. Hi, it's great to be here. If I go down right now, you're going to save me, right? Or can, I gotcha. You're going to resuscitate me? Yeah, it's a team effort, but we gotcha. Okay, we're also here with uh, one of your friends who's shadowing you today, Bonnie. Hello, Bonnie. Hi. She's a student, a medical student. I am. So if I, if I go down, I feel like I'm in pretty good hands. Yeah, and Bonnie has a career prior to this working in EMS and paramedicine, so the two oh, of okay. us. Oh, yeah, okay. Gotcha. I, I got my uh, wilderness first responder many years ago in college, and it's expired, and then I got my CPR and first aid, but... Oh, good for you. So I feel like if something happens, I can... It's the yeah. most important part. ...do something. I used to carry around one of those little um, mouth uh, guard deals oh, yeah. in my, my backpack, because mm-hmm. you know, now they're saying they're saying no, no, no breaths, right? Yeah, it's more about the chest compressions. But is that because it's ineffective or because of like transmitting like a disease or something? Because the most important thing is doing those chest compressions, circulating that blood until you can get an AED there and get 911 there. Those AEDs are great now because yeah. they won't shock unless there's no heart no heartbeat, right? Unless it's a heartbeat that is shockable. So it reads and interprets the rhythm strip and shocks if if that would benefit the patient. So the old school like ER movie show style, the clear rubbing together, is that, are they still using those? or? Yeah, we still use those. But... but but it's because we interpret the rhythm strip. So in the emergency department, we read the rhythm strip and say, oh, this is a shockable rhythm. And then we shock them. You don't always do those pads. Now we usually do these stickies more, uh, but we don't use the ADs. Yeah, I've, the I've, ADs I've seen the, stick, the sticky things. That you, so yeah. that when they were doing it before, do they, do they really have to like rub them together? Is that re- required? You have to put gel on them so you've got good conduction. And so oh. that's, that's spreading the gel. See, I thought they were just kind of heating them up. No. <laughs> it's, to, it's, to, it's to spread the gel so that when you connect it to the person, the actual electricity can go through. Okay. Wow. That's a great great start here. We're learning yeah. a lot. Um, so you're the chief medical officer for the state, and I met you uh, a few weeks ago at Steam.Dot. You were with Becky Holtberg, yep. who did a podcast, and we talked for a while, and we just had so many things to discuss about health care and health in America and Alaska, so I wanted to get you on the podcast. Um, I want to first start talking about how did you get into become medicine, become a doctor? You're pretty young, too. You said you're 42, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, so my parents are actually physicians, so I told myself I would never be a doctor. And then I was an inorganic chemistry and fine arts major in college. Oh, my gosh. And took a year traveling as part of the Watson Foundation Fellowship after I graduated. And despite the fact my fellowship had nothing to do with medicine, I kept finding myself in health clinics around the world. So... Are you from Alaska? I'm not. I'm from Colorado originally. So I grew up in Colorado. I went to college on the East Coast and then did this fellowship for a year. And through that process, really realized that it was where I wanted to be, was working with people and their health. I felt like there was nothing more important. So I decided to go to med school, moved to Seattle, thought that I would establish residency there, worked in a genetics lab for a year, applied to med schools, uh, got in to places I wasn't expecting. So Ended up going to Stanford Med School, went there for four years. No no big deal. No big deal. Uh, it was great. It was, um, you know, they really had a big focus on collaborative medicine, thinking about things together as a team. Rather than one team competing against another, we weren't really pinned against each other as med students. It was a really collaborative effort. So I really appreciated that aspect of med school there and met fantastic people. There was a lot of industry involved in medicine there, which was really interesting to think about how industry, press, technology all affect the way that we care for people and health. So not kind of your traditional teaching in that sense, and it's definitely influenced my career. 
But I've always loved rural areas. I was a mountaineering guide in Alaska during college, so I spent all of my summers in college up here. Oh, wow. I, I, when I moved here in 04, I, I got involved with the MCA. Okay. So like, that's where I learned yeah. to ice climb, yeah. and I was doing stuff all, you know, it used to be a little thinner back then. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was a Knowles in, instructor, so I worked for the National Outdoor Leadership School out of Palmer, Alaska for a bunch of summers, <clears throat> and then I was going to work for a different guiding company in med school, uh, but then decided not to do that. <clears throat> Things got kind of busy. And decided I wanted to continue rural work, and so I chose my residency based on practicing in rural environments and went to the University of Utah, had a great experience there, and then afterwards decided to come up here. So we moved up here 11 years ago and have been here since and love it. So you do the med, you do the college and then the med school, and then you do this like re- residency. So I mean, it takes, what, many eight years or something after, after college, right? Yeah, so it depends on what sort of specialty you want to go into. <coughs> so traditionally, most med schools are four years. There's some that are kind of this three-year combination. There's some alternative ways of doing it, but most med schools are four years. The school I went to was four years. And then you do residency that's anywhere from three to seven to eight to nine years, depending if there's research involved and depending on your specialty. It's so long. It is long, but you're learning so much during the process. It goes incredibly fast. So, but once you start, like after medical school, when you start in residency, you start at some point making, you're actually making money at that point, right? A little bit? Yeah. So in residency, theoretically, you're not taking out debt and you're uh, making a salary. Um, usually if you calculate it per hour, it's less than minimum wage, but you, you're, you, at least you're not going as far into debt as quickly. Why do we, and I don't, I'm not sure if this is something you want to get into, but it seems like to be a doctor, any kind of doctor, you have to go through all of this medical school and training. And there's been some talk about kind of licensure, changing some some things where if you're just doing one very narrow thing, maybe you shouldn't have to go because the debt's so expensive to go to medical school. The debt is really expensive. It's interesting. I think that medicine and really life in general has become more and more specialized and medicines become more and more specialized. And I think that in some ways we miss the whole person aspect of that. And so there's a lot of people discussing medical education as a whole, thinking about different ways to kind of structure it, to really be thinking about the whole person. How do we make sure that training reflects that and how do we make it not so expensive? Um, I'm hopeful that we'll get some changes there. I think sometimes, you know, I say this, I lived in Australia. We talked about that. I lived in Australia for a year and I, I kind of saw like a system where nobody worries about losing their job or getting sick or, if you know, what happens if my kid or lose my job and lose the insurance. So I kind of... A lot of people say we have like a sick care system sometimes and a health care system because so many folks are nervous to go to the doctor because of the cost. You make an excellent point. So, I mean, part of the reason I chose emergency medicine was because I really wanted to choose a specialty where I didn't have to think about the reason or the patient's ability to pay when they came in. Mm-hmm. I would see them regardless of their ability. And I love being able to take care of a CEO right next to someone who's homeless, right next to a kid. Like, it's just this whole variety of life. And you really realize how human we all are. Even the field. Even the field, and that I would always be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, willing and able to see patients if they felt like it was a medical emergency. I mean, that's really why I chose that specialty. So how long did you work as as an ER doctor for? So I'm still practicing a few shifts um, to try to keep up my clinical skills and to still see patients. I also feel like seeing patients is my why. It's the reason why I do what I do. And it helps to kind of ground my now administrative work into into clinical practice. So still see people. How much of the ER is like the show ER? Anything? A little bit? <laughs> uh, none. Uh, Zero. No, like, <laughs> there's a little bit. A little bit, little bit of drama? Do you, do you ever watch Scrubs? You know, I've seen a few episodes. When I was y- younger, I'm 34. So I mean, when I was a kid, ER came out and... I remember watching it, you know, as a kid, and it was it ran for a long time. A long time, yeah. So it was like always something, you know, what happened in the ER? I mean, there's definitely some things. Grey's Anatomy, you know, they cut out a lot of specialties. There was an interesting study that looked at how many times people were resuscitated on those shows and lived compared to reality. Like, I think there's a lot more 
um, medical miracles on shows yeah, than there well, are in life. <laughs> people watch. <laughs> yeah, people watch, right? There's a lot less um, substance misuse. There's a lot less, um, you know, they don't talk about payment and systems of care uh, in ER and Grey's Anatomy. And, and how do you get people connected to outpatient care? Those things are, are really a lot of our struggles. So, so one of the things, and I think this still goes on, even, you know, if the Affordable Care Act was supposed to deal with some of this, we're trying to insure everybody, but... You know, there's still a lot of people who, you know, they, they get sick, they don't go to the doctor, and they wait, and then, you know, they go to the ER as kind of their first care. Um, and by that point, maybe they've, it's gotten worse and worse if they would have gone earlier. And then the the law, I mean, the law, I believe the law says you have to, you can't turn somebody away from the ER, right? Yeah. But then there's also these costs that come, because it's more expensive, the ER is more expensive than if you go to a doc, you know, clinic or something and say, hey, I hurt my, you know, hurt my arm or hurt my knee. Yeah, exactly. So there was a federal law passed in 1986 called EMTALA, and that requires that every hospital that takes Medicare and Medicaid will see, do a medical screening and stabilization and transfer a patient if necessary. So that's kind of the main federal law that governs all emergency department work across the country, and it's been there since, as I mentioned, 1986. Um, But as you mentioned, that's not a full system of care. And I really realized quickly working in the emergency department is that in the emergency department is where you saw all public safety and public health fail. So when policies were failing, they would build up in the emergency department. And that's what led me down this road of going from taking care of patients clinically to where I am today, is I realized that if I wanted to care for my patients, I had to care about the policies in the hospital, and those policies needed to change at the hospital system setting, and that needed to change at the state setting, Mm -hmm. and that needed to change at the federal setting. And so in an effort to care for individual patients as I was going on, kind of took me through the securitist route, starting to work with legislators, both on a state and federal level, leaders from across the country, trying to kind of figure out the problems. And I see my work now really is very similar to the work that I do in the emergency department. It's to help care for people of Alaska. Yeah, I mean, many years ago, I was probably seven or eight years ago, I was playing, I was on a rec, uh, club soccer team with some friends, and we were playing, and it was a night game, it was like nine o'clock at night on a Thursday, and we, uh, I was playing goalie, and I had this came out and I had this really bad collision with this guy. And I, my, my leg, his knee went into my leg and it was my thigh and it hurt like so bad. And I was right away, I was like, wow. And, and very quickly I went home and it just was so painful and I developed this pre- pretty big bruise like immediately. And I just, uh, you know, I read all this med WebMD crap on the internet, it scares me. So I, I, I read something a long time ago about compartment syndrome mm-hmm. or com- compartmental yeah. compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome. So I'm kind of like, there's a hockey player that got in a collision and he had it and he almost lost his leg. Yeah. So I'm just like fucking scared. I'm thinking like, do I have, you know, and I'm like really nervous and it's like 10 o'clock at night. So I was like, I'm going to, I don't have any insurance. So I'm going to go to Providence. I'm just, I, I don't know if I should, I just better safe than sorry. So I go in and I go to check in and I said, look, like I, I had this collision. I don't know if I should, you know, cause once you sign in there, boom, the charges kick off, you know? And I said, can somebody just give me an idea? Like, like what's it going to cost to come see a doctor? And nobody knew. I mean, of course nobody knows what it costs. So I was like, is, is there a nurse that could maybe just, like, can I tell them, do I need to check in? Maybe I don't need to check in. Maybe I just need to, maybe I'm fine, you know? And they were like, I don't blame them. I mean, worry about getting sued or something. So they said, you have to, to get seen. You have to, you know, sign in. So I did it and I waited and I went back and, you know, it took a while. They took, doctor came in, they looked at it and did some stuff. And he goes, yeah, I, I think it's fine. I would watch it, you know, and whatever. And, and I was just, it was like 45, maybe an hour, hour and a half I was in there. And it was like $1,500. Mm-hmm. And that's just crazy. Yeah. The costs of healthcare are incredibly expensive. And I think there we could talk we could have multiple shows kind of talking about that specific aspect and all the different things that goes into someone's health. The emergency department is really, I think, a unique environment. There's a great article called, I think it's called the fifteen hundred dollar popsicle. And it's the fact that you're not really just paying at that moment when you go into the emergency department for someone to examine your leg and to see if you're okay or not. 
but you're paying for a trauma system to be available. You're paying for a full-time physician to be there to be able to see and assess you and to have this entire system of care. And so that system of care is kind of built into the emergency department. But when there's no other place for you to go, it's the only choice that people have. That was just a weird thing because it was was a night and everything was close. And I was just really kind of nervous about, is something really, you know, wrong here? Do I need to have something like happen? But when I was in Australia, I mean, I lived there for a year and this wasn't an an ER situation, but I was there for a while and I started developing this cough and I was like, man, what's wrong? And I had a chest infection. And so I went to the clinic in Sydney. I called him and and I went in and uh, I said, look, I don't have any, you know, I have travel, like insurance from home, but I don't have the Australian system. And uh, I was like, how much is it? And they said, oh yeah, 75. And I said, well, how much is it like like more? You know, because here it's like, they give you a price, but then there's like way more bills you get. And she's like, ah, oh, you American, ain't you? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, it's 75. And I was like, that's it? So it was a clinic, right? So I waited, kind of like here, 30 minutes. I come in, the doctor, he was a Polish immigrant, family immigrated from Poland. Really cool guy, great doctor. Uh, listened to my chest, d- determined I had a you know chest infection, gave me some antibiotics. Really nice guy. Was there, talked to me like, how's your health? What's going on? Ask me these questions mm-hmm. just in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should lose a little weight, mate. You know, you're a little, you know, just a really good conversation with him. And then I go to the across the street to the pharmacy to the uh, chem, chemist, mm-hmm. as they say, and I, I go to f- uh, fill the prescription. And I was like, man, how much is going to cost shit? And uh, so I give it to the guy, and I was like, how long will it be? Like, when should I come back? And he's like, huh? What are you talking about? And I was like, when should I come come back and pick it up? He's like, mate, it'll be ready in like five minutes. Because yep. like here, you know, the whole thing where I don't know why that is, but you always you drop it off and come back. I don't. It's for some reason we do that here. And uh, it was like it was like fifteen bucks, so it was like a hundred bucks, right? Ninety bucks Australian. And I got seen, and I got it was like I'm, I'm not even part of their system. Yeah, I don't have Australian medi- medical medi- Medicaid or Medicare, what they call it. I mean, why is it so expensive here? You know, everything's so expensive. I, I got a surgery years ago, a sinus surgery, um, nasal polyps I had to get removed like five years ago, and my doctor, you know, got the insurance quote and whatever, and. They, insurance approved it and he was 20,000 and whatever. And I had to get a uh, CT, MRI or CT scan. That was 1500. I had a $5,000 deductible, get the surgery, come back. I get like a month late. They don't tell you what it costs right away. They give you bills a month later. I get a $25,000 bill from the hospital and I go, I thought it was 21,000. I guess something happened. Then I found out that was the hospital bill. That wasn't even his bill. Four hour procedure here in Anchorage, $50,000 with the anesthesiologist. You know, I, these are questions that are great questions, and they come up all the time. And the cost of healthcare is incredibly complex and incredibly interesting. I don't think anyone would have designed the system to be this way if it was designed. And I tell just, people, if you want to make the most complicated system in the history of medicine, just copy our system. Right. We already got it. Well, we've allowed just the business of healthcare to develop. I think the question is, what sort of system do we want? And what I've really reflected on is there's actually three different systems of healthcare when I think of it that I would want. The system of healthcare I want as a policymaker is fundamentally different from what I want as a patient, and it's different than what I would want as my parent. Ooh, that's interesting. So How you, as, yeah. a, as a policymaker, I want the most effective, cost-effective healthcare. Most people being healthy, living productive lives for as long as possible at the cheapest cost. What I want as a parent is what's going to keep me and my family, or I want as an individual is what's going to keep me, my family healthy, but not put us bankrupt in debt. But what I want for my kid is whatever health care is needed to make them lie, alive and survive and be well. And I don't care about that. I'll do whatever needs to happen for that person. And I think that we are going for that child health care system. We want anything for that child. 
But when you look at a system like the UK, you look like Australia, they're thinking about it for how can I get as many people healthy and well as possible for the dollars that are there. But there's consequences to that. And there's kind of trade-offs. Well, we don't have unlimited resources. Nobody has unlimited resources. No, and there's more healthcare than we can afford everywhere in the world. So every country struggles with this. I, I mean, I always have said, you know, before when I didn't have insurance and then I had a job with, with insurance and I kind of see the system, I, I think healthcare in this country is... is Fine, it's really good. The the quality, you know, the technology we have. If you're wealthy, if you're really wealthy, you don't got to worry about it. If you're really poor, you go on, you know, Medicaid, so you have that you have that kind of uh, protection. But if you're kind of middle, if you're not wealthy, but you're not, you know, you're kind of working, making a decent living, and you have some insurance, you still might have a deductible of a lot of these deductibles now are five thousand plus the premium. So, you know, you're out ten grand a year before anything even happens, and you have to make a lot. I mean, you have to make a lot of money. To, for that to be kind of a small percentage of your, you know, income, a smaller percentage of your income, even if you're making eighty grand and it's ten grand if something happens with the deductible and the in the premiums, I mean that's that's a big part of your. It's more than ten percent of your income. Yeah, no, I mean it's. We used to think about having health insurance meant that you had health care. Those no longer are the same thing. You may have health insurance, but it's under insurance, and you can't afford to actually pay your deductible, as you mentioned. It's the number one cause of bankruptcy. It's a huge weight on the American economy in general. I just listened to a you, you know the Daily podcast, Michael Barbaro. You hear that one about the West Virginia? These hospitals, these people have insurance. This woman had insurance, had a job, made you know I think pretty minimum wage, not a lot of money. Had kids, kid got sick, some horrible. Um, spinal thing where they was like a freak thing and she was a kid required a surgery required a lot of you know and she had insurance she had insurance but she couldn't afford the the um copays and all the other costs that were there so she gets they sue her like she's getting like all these people now they're finding out are being sued who have insurance are being sued and they did a story in the new york times and some some random guy paid her bill but she still got more more bills coming in you know, and she she has like she hasn't. She's not some uninsured. Oh, I don't want to pay for insurance person. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we all want to be healthy, and we want to be well. And I think we have reason for that from a public safety aspect. We have reason for that for a homeland security perspective. We have reason for that for business development. So you've got people to work for you, and I think we all are invested in trying to figure out how to make people healthy and well. Mm-hmm. But we've had this system in place, and I think it's one of the things I really enjoy about my job now. Is it's really my the entire mission of the Department of Health and Social Services is the health and well-being of Alaskans and coming in as a physician. Like that is what I get to promote, and part of that is healthcare access and making sure it's affordable. Part of that is also making sure that we're screening healthy people are a lot cheaper than sick people. So how can mm-hmm. we make people healthy and well? Because that's going to save us money. So in the long this run. is probably a much more broad question about our society, but it seems like so many folks something's wrong and there's a health problem and maybe maybe they're making bad choices, having a bad diet, they're overweight something's wrong and it's instead of kind of this we need to change your lifestyle it's a lot easier here take a pill here take this medicine here we'll give you this we'll give you that it seems like there's a big problem in this country about kind of changing behaviors or habits that are maybe causing some of the problems whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure or heart problems or you know bad knees because you're overweight and it's it seems like it's a challenge to kind of tell people hey maybe change your lifestyle instead of some folks who say well i want medicine i want a pill i want a painkiller i want you know what i'm saying is that no, absolutely. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, there's a great little summary that I heard once about uh, doing a CAT scan, a head CT on a child. And we've got really good data on who you should be doing a head CT or not. And this emergency physician was really angry. And he basically said, everything in the system encourages me to do the head CT on that kid. The dad wants it. I get reimbursed more for it. The hospital's happier because they make more money for it. I'm less medically, legally at risk to do it. 
the only thing that keeps me from doing it is it's not the right thing for the patient and exposes them to care. So we've set up this entire system where you make it really hard for providers to actually provide good care in the moment. And so it's hard to have those long conversations about what does it look like for diabetes? What does it look like for hypertension? I think still to this day, one of my favorite um, compliments that I ever got from a patient is when I walked into the room and she said, oh, no, not you again. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? And she looked at me and she said, the last time you saw me, you told me that my lung problems were from smoking and you had a long conversation with me about the importance to stop smoking. And that was really, really hard, but I did. And now I'm here with back pain and you're probably going to tell me I need to lose weight and that's going to be really hard as well. And I said, I'm so glad you listened. That's awesome. Yeah. That's and that what... was a huge compliment. I was like, I feel like I did my job today, but you have to push back and take all these other, I have to take away time from someone else waiting in the emergency department if things are piling up to have those longer and harder conversations. So how do we think about changing systems of care to empower relationships, to have those meaningful relationships that get to the true meaning of health? I mean, m most of this seems like almost all of this is really, it's really on the federal level, right? No, I mean, I think it's at the local level, state level. I actually think we have much more power over our healthcare system and our health than we think of. I think I learned that really at Matsu watching the opioid epidemic and seeing the influence of the opioid task force and people changing that conversation locally. It was phenomenal to watch that cultural change out there happen uh, in a short period of time. When I first came, I felt like a drug dealer every single day. People say like, oh, come on, just give me five more. And I'm like, I'm not your dealer. Like, I'm not, this isn't like a negotiation meet the, here. Meet me on the corner of the block. Totally. I'm like, I'm here to care for you. Um, and I felt like there were many conversations that were very um, contentious and somewhat adversarial with patients where you were trying to help them with your pain. This was the only tool that you knew that would help them. It was what they were asking for. You were ranked and rated on making sure that you were doing everything to deal with their pain. You had a sense that these drugs weren't good and there was concern about that. I had no idea how much the pharmaceutical company was hiding that data from us and how little we didn't know at that time. I think it's very, it's gonna, it's coming out now, but it's, it's like the cigarettes. Yeah. In the 80s. So, you know, hey, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. Because you, you saw those, um, you've seen the videos in the 90s, early 90s, when they're talking about they aren't addictive. Yep. This is the, you know, that helps people. That's not no, addic no addictive properties. And, I, you know, I, I, I tell people, and I think most people who pay attention realize this, this epidemic is in large part due to 25, pl 20 plus years of prescribing stuff to people uh, who had pain and maybe got addicted and need, kept needing it. And then all of a sudden they said, okay, we can't do this anymore. Take it off. Boom. It's hard to get now. So you go to the street to score the stuff and it's bad. You know, it's got fentanyl in it. It's laced with crap that kills you or make, makes it way worse. And it's just, it's like a perfect storm. And now it's starting to really come in. Some of these lawsuits, I saw one of those companies has to pay a lot of money. There's big lawsuits out there, and I think that the, the conversation has changed and it has gotten much better, but I think that that was a good example to me of how the public can really have a big difference in this. And so when the press started to become involved, when public information started to get out there, when the opioid task force became more involved, it started to change the culture around opioids. And so now when people come into the emergency department, they'll say, I, I know these might be harmful for me. Should I really take it? Should I not help me understand what this looks like better? And I suddenly feel like I can be a partner with my patient instead of this adversarial mm -hmm. relationship. It's really, really yeah, changed. Because I remember in high school and, you know, I grew up in New Mexico. I moved here when I was 19 and 04. But I remember it was like, the thing was like, get Oxycontin. Get, you know, I, I, I never really, you know, I got sick once and I had a surgery. And I, I never want to, because you feel like it's, you, it feels, you like it. It's like, this is probably not something... But it was like a thing. People would get pills and they'd find them. Play. I don't know where they'd get them, doctors yeah. or whatever, prescriptions or parents. And it was a thing, you know, for a long time, like mix it in your drink or get the pill and, you know, cut it up. And it was like everybody was talking. It was like the big thing. And that was 
you know, late 90s, early, early 2000s. Yeah. I, those things just scare me so much because right now we're also seeing so much fentanyl coming in. And so pills will look like an oxycodone or a Percocet and they'll actually not be truly manufactured by like a U.S. manufacturer. And they may be manufactured illegally and have fentanyl in it's them. It's like synthet- synthetic stuff from China. You take one pill. That could be it. They, they, so they say, I, I watched it was a 60 Minutes thing. There's fentanyl, but then there's this, this, thing, this thing, carfentanyl. Mm-hmm. And they say, I can't believe this. It's just crazy. One gr- like grain, like a grain of sand can like can like kill an elephant mm-hmm. it's like insane and they say you know a, a big bag of this stuff can i mean it can like poison the cities like waters i mean it can kill t- tens of thousands of people and they're getting it synthetically and they're chopping up the heroin with it because they want to get stronger and you know cheaper they can sell more but you know they don't know what they're doing some street guy with a chemist you know in his garage and people are just you know they could take a hit of this stuff and that's it boom dead yeah it's part of the reason we as a state are really pushing out to try to get naloxone or narcan out as much as possible for people to carry around i know actually bonnie carries around as a med student with her narcan's <laughs> like that the, a lot of the um, ambulances have, have it right now and- yeah so ambulances have it ems uh like i said all carries it the troopers are carrying it police carry it is, is it like an epipen or is it how it's kind of it? like an epipen you put it in your nose so it's not a shot in the same sort of way but it reverses an opioid and so it can save a person's life for sure so anyone who's on chronic opioids should have it at home so even if you're an older person on chronic opioids and you get a urinary tract infection that may be enough to stop breathing to have the opioid kind of make it so you stop breathing i think people forget about that component or people who are using either illegally or legally opioids should have that available as much as possible. Having it in the car, you never know. I think that it should be absolutely everywhere. It's part of the reason we have a standing order that now kind of under my medical license, people don't need a, a prescription for it. And wow. It's out there. Yeah, I've heard about that. Narcan, it's like the new thing. Yeah, the Narcan kits. What about um, methadone? Is that still, people still doing that in the clinics? Is that still something they're... Yeah, so methadone is, so there's something called um, medication-assisted treatment. So methadone is one type of treatment of kind of both substance misuse as well as chronic pain that can be a good medication. It definitely has risks. It can make you stop breathing just like other opioids. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of specific federal regulations about administering that, making sure your clinic is following certain rules. But it, for some people, it's a really good long-term pain medication. It hits a couple other receptors besides just the mu receptor, which is what most opioids hit. So for certain people, it actually controls pain better because it helps hit multiple areas. There's more data really pushing us towards what we call multimodal pain approach. So instead of just treating pain with kind of one tool, which is what we really did with the opioid epidemic. I have pain. I'll give you an opioid. That was like problem answer. And it's clear that there's a lot of different reasons that people have pain and a lot of different receptors that feed into the pain process. And so by addressing pain from multiple different angles. So just for example, there was a study that came out that showed that 200 milligrams of ibuprofen with 500 milligrams of Tylenol was more effective than 15 milligrams of oxycodone for acute pain and post-surgical pain. So just taking those two medications together was better than an opioid. Doesn't, doesn't feel as good, though. <laughs> and you don't get quite as much of a high. But if you're really looking at people saying, my pain is better, and so that was on a pain ranker scale where they said, this was my pain prior to taking these medication. It was a double-blind study, so people didn't know what mm-hmm. they were getting. They said my pain was better when they took those two pills. Compared well, it's to like, I, I remember that study I read about years ago. It's like the rats, and if, you know, where they have the water, and one, you know, one has cocaine or laced with some kind of opiate or cocaine and the other one has you know the, has just regular water and the rats that were among other like other rats they would always choose that too they'd always choose the regular one yeah. but the rats that were by themselves they would always choose the one with that was with i think it was cocaine or was some, some kind of yeah and, mm-hmm. and it was it was just kind of like a very kind of some like symbolic like, you know if, if you're in life have family and friends and support and you're like not by yourself you know, maybe you don't need to do the drugs because mm-hmm. the drugs is a, it's a, you know, it's a symptom. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an answer to a symptom. 
Yeah. Whereas the real problem is isn't the drug. It's it's your your you know kind of how you live your life and who who you have around you and who who you don't have around you. I mean that really almost gets fullbacks to the story that we were talking about with cost earlier. So when we look at other systems in other countries and how they pay for it, they pay for a lot of these kind of what we call social determinants of health, things like housing, making sure the people are safe at home, because eighty percent of your overall health is kind of determined by these social determinants of health, and only twenty percent is genetics and healthcare specifically. So all of these other things, just like the rats in that cage, like the environment that we live in, really affects our health much more than we ever realized. There's a fantastic study um, called the ACES study where a Kaiser set of populations they looked at. This set of population, they said, what sort of adverse childhood experiences did you have? It came out of a really interesting, um, the idea behind it was there was a guy who was treating obesity, and he found that he had all these women who were losing weight, and then they would gain all this weight back, and he was trying to figure out what was going on. And he asked one of the women, like, when did you start your period, and when did you become sexually active? But he accidentally asked, at what age did you become sexually active? And she shared a story about getting abused at a young age. Mm -hmm. And so he started to look through his patient population and say, how often is this happening? How else is going on? And he found everyone in his big obesity population group was had significant childhood, adverse childhood experiences. So he put together this study in combination with the CDC, and they looked at this Kaiser population. And it's been repeated numerous times, and it's actually been looked at in Alaska and other places at adverse childhood experiences. And they have these 10 different listings. And if you have eight or more of those adverse childhood experiences, your life expectancy is 20 years declined. It is one of the most correlated things between if we look at the duration and intensity of those experiences to how you end up doing overall. And that isn't just like drug or alcohol use. That's cardiovascular disease. That's autoimmune disease. That's things like asthma. And so really thinking about that whole person and the environment that they live in makes a big difference, not only for substance misuse and looking at drug addiction, but also really looking at their overall cardiovascular health and their overall Well, that goes back well-being. to you're talking about the, like the, the full picture of yeah. like the patient. You know, you're here, but like what's, what's the whole picture? That's what we have to look at. And it's one of the things I'm excited about right now. So Medicaid had this what's called an 1115 um, uh, waiver. So an 1115 waiver is where we ask federally to do something slightly different than what Medicaid has traditionally done. It's about five years ago, a group kind of put together this 1115 waiver for behavioral health specifically. And they looked at a study specifically in Alaska on adverse childhood experiences. It's called the Alcan study looking across the state to say, what are the adverse childhood experiences? What are we seeing? And they set this 1115 waiver up to be able to kind of pay upstream to try to start to move upstream to helping support people in community earlier on as a way to kind of help decrease the cost of healthcare, but more importantly, get people healthy and well. And that's just in the process of rolling mm. out. So, so how did you become like when did you become and how did you become the the chief medical officer? That's a kind of big big. When I heard when I talked to you at the coffee shop and I saw your card, I was like, ooh, like, seems like a pretty important job. <laughs> chief World. You know, it's it's been an honor and a privilege. I um, got to know the previous chief medical officer, Dr. Jay Butler, uh, who many people in the state know yeah, I've and heard, love. I've heard, I think you, I think you might have been, been on the radio with Dave Steeren once. I remember yeah. that name. He's been around for many, many years. And I told Jay uh, probably two or three years ago, I, I worked with him quite a bit. And I said, you know, Jay, when I grow up, I want to be like you. Um, <laughs> he just is incredibly intelligent, sweet, kind. Someone said something about him once where they said, you know, he's hard on the issues, but soft on the people. And I've always appreciated that about Jay. He always looks at the science and the data. He really, the, I think I'm the opposite. <laughs> he became this huge national leader over the opioid epidemic. He actually just published a book about addressing the opioid epidemic from a public health approach. And he got asked to stay on as a chief medical officer, but everyone loves Jay. And so the CDC asked him to be the deputy director of infection control, infectious disease. And so he's moved to Atlanta. Oh, wow. That's a big promotion. So it was a big promotion. And so I was actually in Bhutan helping to set up an EMS system there. And he called and said, hey, Ann, I got a job that I think you should do. 
Remember when you told me you wanted to be like me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing. That's maybe even a separate podcast, but you, you you took a year off, right? You went to all these places in Asia and Europe and all over the world, right? You did a whole did. year sabbatical and, and did med- practice medicine and went to... How many countries did you go to? Ten countries, ultimately, we went to. So, yeah, I... I'd been the medical director at Matsu and uh, loved it, had a great experience, but also felt like I needed a change. My kids were getting older, so they're now middle school and high school, and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do and figured it was a good time to kind of reflect a little bit more on what I wanted to do with my career and to spend some time with them before, honestly, they're gone. And so we... They'll be, they'll be gone before you know it. They're going to be gone before I know it. Absolutely. And then I also worked out with our group. There was a guy who was going to retire in a year, and we had a great person who wanted to come on. So if I went on sabbatical, we could hire her early, and then she could take the guy who was retiring's job. So from a job perspective-wise, it kind of worked out from that aspect. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So, so you, were, you said you were in Bhutan, which is... That's, I've never been to Bhutan. It's a place I'd love to go. I mean, that's... It was always high on my bucket list. It was awesome. I'd always wanted to go. You can you either have to pay between two to two hundred and fifty dollars a day per person to go there or be a medical volunteer. And so I went and it's worked like, in the emergency department. It's like some of these countries, like I took a trip years ago. I went to Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, mm-hmm. Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. Yeah. And I really wanted to go to Turkmenistan, but it's it's actually one of the hardest countries in the world, harder than North Korea to get into. Oh wow. And the the only really way you can go in there is through one of these tour companies. Mm. And it's very expensive. It's like way more than it's like hard. And it's like I want to go so bad, you know, but some of these countries the access to get in, I mean it's cheap to be there, but the, the, the way they run, run the visa system and the way they kind of run the access is it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Bhutan's very similar way. They they really they make it hard and and for good reason. They they really want to kind of keep their culture their culture and this is a way that they bring in a lot of income, but uh it was fantastic working there as a clinician. It was really interesting to see you know, they have about 700,000 people. They have a lot of roadless areas. There's actually a lot of similarities between here and Alaska, mm-hmm. um, Bhutan and Alaska, and seeing the similarities and differences. They had a helicopter system, but they had no EMS system, really, because they hadn't had roads for a long time. So we helped write a curriculum for the EMS system. And did you do any mountain climbing? I did a lot of hiking there, not as much mountain climbing. We were there in December and January, Ooh. so we were in there in the winter. A little um, chilly. A little, oh, a little chilly. Oh, so yeah. you went to Singapore, too, and Korea, and other... Yep. So we started, we went Norway, Croatia, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Bhutan, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. Home. It's like such a broad range of countries and cultures and geez it was we we covered the gamut there yeah said we weren't going to go to any country where any of us spoke the language which cut off all south america central america a lot of some of europe so um that was part of it and it was all countries that we couldn't have ever been to before so my family everyone wanted to feel like we were on equal footing so so did you do like a program or did you have somebody like how'd you get into Visa, I mean, visas and be able to do all the... Because you were working, right? I was working. So it's not the tourist. You can't just show up with a tourist visa, can you? And you well, to... yes and no. So a lot of places I went, I volunteered for work. Um, and so I would just be there to... We were there really on tourist visas. The only place I wasn't there on a tourist visa was Bhutan. And there I was... A so you're allowed visa. to... There's no like rules about if you're giving, giving care... And you're in a different country with like licensure? Or? It depends on the country. So like Norway and Croatia, I didn't give any care. In Vietnam, a friend of mine was actually doing kind of like a clinic thing there. And so I was working with her on kind of establishing some stuff there. Bhutan was the main place that I worked clinically. That was the place I'd only say I was like really working, working. Mm-hmm. How long were you there for? Bhutan was there six weeks, a little over six weeks. Wow, I love traveling. I, I did the Australia for a year, but I've been to like many, I've been to almost 50 countries now, I think. And I just, I love, I love seeing other places. And that's one of the things with Americans is, so many of us, just friends of mine, have never left. Yeah, they've never left the the country, or they've been to Canada or something. But, or, you know, Mexico. It was great. I, it's you know, so good to see the world, and, and it makes you really appreciate 
so many things we have, and then also see other ways of like Norway, for example. Yeah. You know, you probably don't worry about getting sick in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> or you don't worry about having insurance problems or you know getting a big bill from the hospital. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we drove back home, I'll never forget, like, driving back. Uh, I live uh, in Palmer and driving up near Mount Nooski Peak there and thinking, this is seriously the most beautiful place in the entire world. Oh, yeah. And being so grateful to be home and feeling so lucky. The community here, the people here, the location here, it it's really feels like home. And the whole year traveling, it was a career and uh, place as well as relationship affirming year. I think we all left saying, huh, we all like each other and I really like my career and, I, and, I, and we really like the place that we live. Funny, um, you know, Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. So he shows up to like people's parties sometimes. He's a weird guy, you know, he's really funny. So there's this thing, um, it was a couple of years ago, this guy was having was like a bachelor party and he was in New York City. And uh, Bill Murray just showed, it was like in an apartment or something like on the street. And Bill Murray shows up. Everybody's like, what the fuck? What's like Bill Murray's here, you know? And he's, um, he's got what's going on, you know? And he's talked, introduced himself and, and he said it was, uh, it was, he gave a speech. He wanted to give a speech to the, to the, because they're getting married, right? Yeah. It was all, all the guys and, or maybe it was both. I think it was a party or something. And he, he said, um, uh, I have a toast. And he did this thing where he says, here's, here's my advice to you. And uh, if you listen to me, I promise you'll, you'll be happy. He says, before you get married, I want you to take her, go travel around the world for a year. And if, if after that one year you get back and you, st- and you still want to get married, it's, it's meant to be. Go. It's good. If not, you know, you'll know. <laughs> yeah, you'll know after doing that. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great as a family. It was great to really set our values. It really made me just feel as though and believe that really my the thing that excites me the most is really thinking about these systems of care and thinking about people. I found myself in all these countries thinking a lot about healthcare, reading as much as I absolutely could about healthcare, the cost of healthcare, healthcare transformation, thinking about how much it's really based on relationships. Uh, it made me really excited to come home, honestly, and, mm-hmm. and to be excited about that part of it. But to also just see all these different ways that things are done and the way that technology is changing things. I was at a presentation recently with Google, and they said, you know, most people have a usual place of care. There's 200 billion searches a year on Google about healthcare-related topics. And I was like, oh, that's that, an interesting point of view. Like, that's, I think that's good and bad because, like, when I had my, my sinus surgery years ago, there was a small um, a CS, surreal sinus fluid, CSF leak. Mm-hmm. So it was no, you know, he prepared it, it was fine, but it was, like, still residual. And I'm, like, I'm, like reading about WebMD. I'm like, fuck meningitis. God damn it. Like, oh my God. I'm like, so I'm texting him and he's like, he's like, stop reading WebMD. Because you, know, you read that stuff and it's like, it's good to learn and you, right. but it's scary. It's like, you go down, a, like something's wrong and you feel something there and you, or you're whatever. And you start reading and you go down this rabbit hole where you're like, I, I have cancer, mm-hmm. you know, like, or I have this, all these things line up. So, I mean, it's good, but it's also like, if you don't, if you're not a medical person trained, you read this stuff and it's like scary. Yeah. It is absolutely scary. And when you or your loved one is sick, it's a totally different world. You know, I think that we, medicine traditionally, I love this quote by Atul Gawande where he talks about how all the medicine used to be able to fit into a black box, including your diagnosis as well as your treatment. And you could go to people's homes, see their social situation, and provide all the diagnosis and treatment that you needed. But now, house, you know, house call. That's house call, so, right? In France, they still do house calls, I think. They do. And EMS ride, or physicians ride on the EMS system out there. There's definitely some different ways of doing it. But we can't fit all that technology and medicine in the same sort of way. And we see people outside of their kind of individual communities. So Michael Pollan talks a lot about like what you should eat and how you should eat. And he you know, publishes this like 450 page book and then a smaller book and a smaller book. At the end of the day, you know, he says, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think the same is true with healthcare. Like, we can get into all these differences. And I think at the end of the day, we need to, like, build systems with good data around relationships and not too much. Like, I think we really need to, like, value that relationship and use good data to be able to to promote health. 
And so that's really my goal isn't about promoting health care, about health industry. It's about how do we promote health and wellness and how do we use the data and systems that we have. And I think that relationships are an important key component of that. And that may be a primary care provider saying, stop reading that because you're really nervous about WebMD right now. It may be- Stop reading about bacterial meningitis. Okay, you're fine. You're fine. Like, you know that, right? And that's traditionally what we've always had. I think that's something I really took from this year. You know, people had priests, they had healers, they had shaman, and that was their like traditional way of understanding. And I think as humans, we are genetically programmed to trust people. We're not genetically programmed to trust systems. And so how do we mm-hmm. remember that when we're thinking about people's really most vulnerable time when they're sick? It's a really good way to, to put, I think you're, that's very true. Yeah. So we tend a lot thinking about how can we make these systems. I don't think that always has to be the physician. I don't think that has to be a nurse. But how do you make those relationships really important? And how do you create systems? There's this physician who told me, he was like, it used to be just me and my patient in a room. And now it's me and my patient and a quality metrics person and an insurance person and the Medicare person and the Medicaid. And they're not physically in the room, yeah, but, but they're, they're all the things he's thinking about instead of thinking about that person in front of me. So how do we as policymakers and press think about getting those people out of the room and support them to have a meaningful relationship that promotes health and wellness? And that's really kind of my goal and what I want to do. Yeah, it's just you think about the, the intro, and I, I know it's our system, we've had it for a long time, but it's just so kind of counterintuitive to, you know, you buy health, you buy car insurance, or you buy fire insurance, you know, you don't you don't buy fire insurance when your house is on fire. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't think... When you when you're sick, you don't think of like the cost, right? You, you don't have time maybe to go. Mm-hmm. How, how much? Well, let's go to this hospital. Let's compare this price to this price. You know, when I'm having a heart attack, right? And then if it's a network or not a network, and there's all these like f- forces and money and pressures and things. And but you know, f- for the most part, when you need a doctor, or hospital, you don't have time to think about how much it's going to cost. Or and and this is like the whole. I mean, could you imagine if if like if if uh, car insurance, you know paid for every oil change and paid for, I mean, what, what would an oil change cost, you know? Yeah. And there's just so many things that are, it just it frustrates me to think about how messed up the system is. Yeah, I think it frustrates everyone. I don't think I've met anyone yet who loves the system the way that it is. And I, it is incredibly complex. And you're right about that. But even like the car insurance aspect, if your car dies, the health insurance company isn't responsible kind of for towing it and then figuring it out from there, yeah, right? right yeah. And so that's why preventative services are covered is because then when you show up in the ER and you haven't gotten those preventative services and you have metastatic colon cancer then, you know, the system sometimes takes on that cost. So how do you really direct those costs to early on, I mean, I'm, early preventative work? I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of capitalism and markets. But, you know, when it, like, when it comes to healthcare, it's, it's like when it's your life on the line or when it's, when it's your, you know, your health on the line, it's not like buying a car or buying, you know, a widget or, or buying a house. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, it's, it's the, the mental process is not the same when you're, you know, I'm having a heart attack or I fell, my, my leg snapped in half. You know, you're not thinking the same way in like a market sense yeah. than you're, when you're buying a widget or something or, 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 a, or a car or a, a movie or whatever you're going to buy. It's a whole different thought process. And this is like, I think the inherent problem with the system is the, they apply, oh, with the market, the market, and um, the markets are good, but sometimes they don't really apply to the situation that is, is occurring. In this case, you know, healthcare. Yeah. You know, I had this attending once who we had a patient who was really sick who came in and um, long story, but he ended up doing really well. But there was a lot of kind of criticism over the case and a lot of grumpy people asking a lot of questions. And I was upset because people, I felt like we did a really good job for the patient and I was upset as people were asking questions. And he said, Anne, 
just remember, you do what's right for the patient and the rest is noise. And I feel like we spend a lot of time in these in these policy meetings talking about the noise and we forget about the person. And I think if we refocus on people at the end of the day, we're able to get around a lot of that noise. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, you're right, it's not a perfect market system and it's not a perfect this and it's not a perfect that. But I think if we think about kind of how we get that background relationships and rack around people, we're able to really transform the way that we look at the system and remember that these are people at the end of the day who, as mentioned, are in a crisis and time of need are sick. And that's not a time, it's not the time you go buy cars. It's not a time to go buy health insurance. And so how do you think about, how do you think about healthcare in terms of those? But on the other hand, we also, as a society, I can't tell you how many times in the emergency department someone will say, well, I'm not going to die, am I? And I'm like, no, we all die. You're just not going to die from yeah, no, you are gonna die, this yeah. today, and I'm going to die too. Um, and I can't prevent all sickness. Or people say, well, I'm not going to be hurt from this. I said, you're more likely to get hurt from driving home today on the icy road than you are from what you came into the emergency department for. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to think about your health. You don't think about physical health, think about mental health, thinking about the whole aspects of it. So I think we need to realize that no healthcare system is going to eliminate sickness or disease, that that is a part of the human Well, experience. that's one of the things that you know I, I, I think it came – during the whole conversation about the Affordable Care Act, there was the um, the death panel mm-hmm. comment. And at the time, everybody kind of freaked out. But if you, I mean, I, I didn't realize this. I, I read, read a lot about it. And we spend, I think it's like a third of our of our total spend in this country on medical um, expenditures is end-of-life care. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's, it's nobody wants to say, hey, you know, it's time to go, you know. But to, to keep somebody who's, who's really, who's 80, who's really sick, alive for six months and spend... $2 million. Nobody wants to say that. But I mean, it's just we don't have unlimited resources. And that I mean, if you think about the death panel comment, I mean, it, it, I don't want to say it makes sense. But it almost look, we have this many resources. How much do we need to put into in other countries? I've spent time in Russia and Eastern Europe and other countries, they seem to just be more accepting, like somebody's old, they're gonna die. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not some like, thing where they want to postpone it for as long as possible. So I think that that's a great example where I think looking at the patient perspective, we can only change that conversation in some ways. So it's really hard as a physician for me to know which one of those people is going to be in their end of life. Even when they come in the car mm-hmm. accident, all I know is they're in a car accident, they're really sick, and I'm going to do whatever yeah. I can. But they might be dead in two weeks. And so it may look like I did tons of work, and that was in the last two weeks of life. But it might have given that 26-year-old their only chance at living. So a lot of times as a physician, it's really hard to know that. It's even harder to know that as a policymaker. Who are those people and what sort of decisions you well, can make? Well, and if it's, my, if it's my dad or my mom, then all of it, you know, so I understand why it's a dif- difficult discussion, but I, it's like, to me, to, to, if somebody's 80 and they, you know, they need a hip, and then it's going to cost us, and then there's something, a complication, and, and they're in the hospital, and it's, they don't have any, in, you know, insurance, or they're on medic. I mean, this is a cost we all pay. Right. And it's a million dollars. So that's where I totally think that we need to be having more honest conversations. I think that the end of life conversation, there's a forum called the Pulse Forum, which people can Google. Here in the state right now, it's currently called like the Comfort One advanced directive, that same idea of like, what do I want in my life? I think that's really about like a, like a DNR type thing. Yeah, like yeah. a DNR. Like what are my, what are my choices as a patient? And I think that we need to be better as physicians about encouraging that conversation. But again, that's where I don't think this is up to necessarily the federal government changing things or state changing things, but how much community can change things. You know, I just had a long conversation with both of my parents and I'm like, they're healthy, but I'm like, what do you want us to do when this happens? And how about this? And how mm-hmm. about this? Like, let me know. Because then I'm really respecting their choices as an 
individual when they're competent and can make those choices. And that's how I honestly think we can save a lot of money now is by better respecting people's choices in the real time. I can't tell you how many times in the emergency department, someone will come in, they're brought in by EMS. We don't know their code status or what they would want done. They've never had that conversation and or it just wasn't in a place that we could see. And so EMS brings them in, we resuscitate them, we get them back, we put them in a breathing tube, we put a bunch of lines in them, we admit them to the ICU. And the family shows up. And the family says, we wouldn't have wanted any of this done. Or they had terminal cancer, this was never part of the plan. And so just even in starting that conversation around those individual people and saying, what do you want? Like if everyone goes home and has some sort of conversation about this, documents it, shares the family. We're working on a state level to make sure that that's easier to be done, better to be shared. It's one, it's a hard conversation. And two, it's not part of our culture. It's not. It's not part of our culture to talk about that stuff. It's not. But I think that that's where I always say that it takes providers, patients, policymakers, the press, and the public to make any change. And you have to remember all five of those. So we can't put all of this weight on policymakers or patients or providers. This also takes the press. It also takes it, it takes the public having these conversations. And so I think that the, that is a cultural change. But it's really what we're doing around the opioid epidemic. There's no reason we can't do this around end-of-life care. There's no reason we can't do this about talking about health and wellness instead of just health care. Like every time I watch a national debate and they're all talking about health care access and they're talking about health insurance coverage, I mean, those are important, but what we really want is health. I don't really care if I have health insurance. What I want is to be healthy and I want to be well. And if I have health insurance to do that, great. But sometimes I have health insurance that's not going to make me healthy. And so thinking about health and wellness is a whole perspective. And so I think we need to be looking at this from providers, patients, policymakers, public, and press all together. That's the five P's. It's the five P's, man. Everyone's you got you to patent, you got to trademark that. Trademark good, my what P's. is it? Uh, policy, patient, uh, press, providers, provider, and pub- public. Yep. Public, all of that. Yeah. You know, everyone tells me there's a different P I forgot. I forgot peer support or I forgot, you know, some there's uh, um, someone was telling me lawyers, they had some P, oh, public defenders. <laughs> it's like, they go under policymakers. Everyone's got their other P that they, they can throw add, in. They, they want to add their P. Wait, you got to be smart too, right? Right. Okay, so we got a few more. Can we keep, keep going? Yeah, we can keep going. I got to be at Fascinating. API like, like, too. Like, like talking to you. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's you. go into the chief medical officer part. Okay. What, what, what do you, like, what's your job? What does that mean, chief medical officer? Do you oversee the hospitals? Do you great policy do you you still go to the er sometimes but that's kind of on your own right? that's on my own yep so that's separate so it's full-time job with the state it's i work in the commissioner's office so i work very closely with uh commissioner um crumb and i work closely with deputy commissioner wall and uh, looking over kind of different aspects of how we're dealing within dhss overall about healthcare in general i love our mission about you know really what is the mission is to promote health healthy Alaskans today and in the future. That's yeah, the biggest uh, department, right? DHSS. It's the biggest department. It's huge. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of amazing people who've been working at the state for a long time. It's been really one of the fun parts about the job is getting to know all the subject matter experts. And then I directly oversee public health. So Heidi Hedberg is now the director of public health and she reports to me. Um, and I'm also overseeing um, uh, information technology component of it. So those people kind of directly report to me and I work with them. But then I'm also closely working with behavioral health, with Medicaid, with these other aspects to, to be really thinking about the whole system of care. And my job is really to be thinking about that whole patient perspective and provider perspective uh, and bringing that forward. Do you deal with like maybe that's more the public health uh, person, but like we have a I don't know, Spanish flu type, you know, epidemic or pandemic or yeah. I mean, are there, are there 
things in place for that? Yeah, it's, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I was, as I mentioned when we walked in, I was approving a, a social media post on the flu um, because there's been a, there's definitely an intake in, in flu that we're seeing going around right now, and there's a lot of social media posts going around about it, and so we're trying to provide accurate information mm-hmm. that's getting out there. So, yeah, so I oversee kind of all of those aspects. We have an entire epidemiology team. We have a group that works specifically on vaccines. So anything from influenza to we had a measles case, worked incredibly hard to make sure that one measles case stayed as a measles case and didn't become a measles outbreak, particularly with our decreasing When's, when's an outbreak? Is there a number? number? Is that how- yeah, so it's a great question. So for the CDC for measles, it was more than three cases is when they would list it as that we had um, measles outbreak. It's just so crazy how you th- I thought that was all gone. Yeah, you But think. this anti-vax kind of... I was going to ask you about the flu specifically. Yeah. And, and this is... um. This is something my honest, honest question. I've never got a flu shot. My dad got a flu shot once when I was a kid, okay. and he got really sick. Okay. And I don't know if that was because of the flu shot or whatever, and I've just never gotten one. I mean, I'm not anti-vaccine at all. I mean, I had all my vaccinations, and when I went to Eastern, when I went to South Central Asia, I got you know updated with Tdap and all that stuff. Um, but there's just, I don't know why. I just don't, I've never got a flu shot, and I don't know. Should I get one? Yes. I mean, is there? <laughs> Please. I should have brought one for you. Please get your flu vaccine. I mean, so a couple different Maybe things. Maybe it's like an irrational thing. Because my dad, when I was a kid, I remember he got really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And it was, and you've, you've heard that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can get sick from the shot. And then also I read, they, they can, they guess the strain, right? It's kind of a game of what's going to happen. But I've just, I've just have a, again, not anti-vaccine at all. I've just always had this aversion to the flu shot. So like, should I get a flu shot? Absolutely. Jeff, you need to go get your flu shot. And you should get it now, even even though it's a little bit later than the CDC recommends. A couple different reasons. So first of all, it doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting any flu symptoms. It prevents you from having the serious complications. And when you're in my world and you're taking people care of people with serious complications, young, healthy people like yourself who suddenly get incredibly ill and can die from flu, every year we lose people from the flu. And they can go from healthy to dead in an incredibly short period So I guess in my mind, I just figure I'm pretty healthy. So why do I need? That's the kind of my internal discussion. Yeah. So you are at lower risk than someone who's on chemotherapy or elderly or a young infant. However, you still are at risk from death. From when I said flu. I didn't get the flu shot, Bonnie like jumped and she's like, she was oh. coming over with you. She's like, a she's needle. About to, about to like come. Well, we're, um, we're doing immunology. So we've talked a lot about the flu vaccine and all of these, um, you know, worries that people have from, um, like anecdotal stories yeah, or, yeah. or things that are scary. Um, but yeah, we learn, you know, all about like the flu vaccine is a, it's a killed virus, so it can't give you the flu. So that's like, I think the big, um, misconception about it. Uh, some people, when your immune system is getting excited, um, like the vaccine should do, can give you like some mild symptoms, um, like, like a little fever or something like that as your immune system builds antibodies against that flu strain. But yeah, it, it's also to help, like Dr. Zing mentioned, all of those people that can't get the flu shot, like babies. It's um, like a herd, herd uh, yeah. immunity, yeah. they call it, right? Yeah. So how many people actually get, I mean, do we know how many people actually get the shot? Not enough. Like like half the population? <laughs> or? I think it's less than half. Um, I don't I don't know what they do. Definitely not enough. If we're having this many flu deaths a year, not enough. Yeah, I think it's around like 35 to 40%. Maybe, maybe I should do like a Facebook. Maybe I can come. Can I go somewhere? I could do a Facebook Live and I can say, Absolutely. hey, folks, I'm, I'm doing it. You should do it. I'm, yeah. I bit, bit the bullet here. When I got my flu shot, I posted on social media. Yeah, it was important to get it out there. Yeah, I get it absolutely so, every year. So who can't get the flu shot? So kid, like babies or people who are sick or? Yep. So sick, people who are actively sick, immunocompromised. Um, babies can't get it, and then there's uh, certain allergies where people can't get it. So, you t- kind of talked about what you do at the at the chief medical officer. Mm-hmm. What are um, what are some of the things you're working on now? 
Anything? Ah. Can, can you tell me? Yes. Yeah, big big projects? Top secret. No, I'm just kidding. I don't see you. I don't <laughs> see you in Juno. Do you go to Juno? Well, so I started in July. Oh, that's so why. Okay. I missed the whole legislative season. Oh, this you missed past you year. missed a real doozy. Yeah, I listened to you quite a bit while I was traveling well, I, abroad. I forgot. So I so appreciate you keeping me up to date. I forgot you said you were listening to the. So you were the. You must have been the one when I look at the podcast. I can look at the global. <laughs> you know, like ninety nine percent of downloads are from you know United States. Right. But we have you know, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, all these countries one off or two off. You must have been the one who like who's listening in Norway. <laughs> I was like, why is somebody listening in like Bhutan? You that know? may have I mean, been me. I was I was listening to you. It shows, I, can show, I can show you when I, we're done. I can show you how the map, and you can look at the whole global, and it shows you look, ge- geolocations of where they get downloaded. I was helping your geolocations. No, you were. I was like, where <laughs> the hell? Like Norway? I mean, I can show you. You'll see. I believe you. No, I was listening. I was watching, you know, listening to you and reading a whole bunch of different blogs and wa- reading the ADN and, and watching the process. So, you know, I've been in Juno a decent amount prior to this. Again, like as I was trying to figure out systems of care, I was pretty involved with SB 74. We introduced some part of legislation that was the big Medicaid redesign package that happened three years ago. So we introduced an emergency department kind of component of that, something called the seven best practices and was super excited that passed and that's getting off and running and is actually making a really big difference across emergency departments. And I think ultimately saving us money, but it's a little bit hard to calculate and look at exactly the way that that's all piece together just because of our information technology component. So I'll be down there a lot more coming up. Oh my um, God, I, I'm, I'm, plan, I'm planning to go. So yeah, I'll yeah. Be back at my, my lovely driftwood. Driftwood. We're pretty. That's, that's where that's where the that's where you do. That's where the action happens. The driftwood. Okay. If you're gonna do Juno for any amount of time, you have to. I say for the full Juno experience, you have to yeah. stay at the driftwood for at least a little bit. Okay, it's good to know. You know, this is my first time as a state employee going down there. We're really short on travel. So we were trying. We were all just looking at the budget and schedule the other day, trying to figure out how we maximize actually every trip. Uh, to make it as useful as possible, so trying to trying to figure out how to be down there as much as possible. Trying to do a Juno podcast with Dr. Ann Zink. There you go, down there some ne- legislation this year. Next time we got to talk about uh, your your your. That's a whole different podcast. I mean, yeah. You you should you know you should have done it too late now, but you should have done a podcast. I did a blog, so I wrote oh, did you? quite a bit. Yeah, oh, so you I'll, can. Yeah. I'll have to go read it because I was in I was in Australia. I did a travel blog. I didn't do a podcast, but I did a travel blog as well, and I. Uh, Wrote stories about yeah really what's it called uh, I'll give you a plug for Alaskans dot com <laughs> like F O U R F O U R for Alaskans dot wow yeah. so it's a family it's a family it's our family Did trip. They, when they, were the kids like happy to come back or were they kind of like this is fun I want to keep going yeah they were both happy to come back I mean they're kind of at this genetic age where they're meant to like rebel from their parents and go on their own and we were like hey come hang out with us for a whole year so I think by the time they got back they're pretty excited to see their friends again the, that's the thing about travel we talked about you know getting kind of close together because it's not like if you get in a fight with somebody here like, screw you i'm going away bye so you know yeah. you can't just like leave no yeah we homeschooled them <laughs> we can't. were all there together uh yeah we you know it was interesting it was interesting to me about the importance of having a sense of purpose in one's life um and i think that work oftentimes gives that and we get really busy and we don't think about purpose but really kind of removing ourselves from that we really thought a lot as a family about how much better we do when we have a purpose so like we biked across south korea because like we need a purpose and so we need have to a mission. Oh, we have a mission and the is kids your, needed to own it too. is your husband in healthcare too or is he no oh no he he's always like i don't understand any of that world yeah he's a, he was a mountaineering guide for years um has done some real estate he keeps our life together so he knows the schedule keeps everything so when you when you suggested this was he like whoa okay or uh, great oh for this job no for the trip the year trip oh yeah so i kind of had been thinking about it and then he thought a lot about it and one of his heroes is this guy tim ferris who took a year off and traveled and felt like it was this big deal and so 
He's like, Tim Ferriss did it, so we should do it. And I was like, whatever. Sounds great. So, yeah, think, he was you know, actually a big fan. It, it, people should do it. Yeah. Whether you're young or, I mean, the young, I think the younger, the easier. Yep. Um, for you, it must have been a lot more challenging logistically with kid, kids and you probably had a Dogs. house and jobs and, you know, all the different things. Yeah. What did you do? Did you rent your house out or did you? We rented our house out. We rented our house out, which was great. We sold my car. The hardest thing for us was the dogs, um, trying to figure out what we were going to do. So our neighbors ended up watching the dogs. Um, homeschools, it was pretty fascinating to watch Alaska's uh, education system really support homeschooling in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we were able to kind of do that as we went. I was really nervous about what that was not a teacher by trade. So I was a little like, I don't know how this is going to happen. But you know, the, 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 the one, you, you leave for a year and you come back. And the one thing that the big takeaway when I got back, was, and I tell people if you ever travel, I can't. I sold my car. Yeah. And I canceled my insurance. I was like, I don't need car insurance. Why, why should I have car insurance? Oh, okay. And I got back, and I don't know if you saw this, but my premium like skyrocketed. Mm. And I said, what the? Because before I was paying, I don't know, 350, 400 bucks for six months. And I go, what the hell? It was like double. And I called Geico, Geico and I said, what's going on? They said, oh, you were uninsured for a year. Oh, interesting. I go, I didn't have a car for a year. Yeah. And it's some, you know, algorithm or something. It was very, very, I don't know if you saw that, but it was very mm. frustrating. Well, my husband's car we kept, but we changed the insurance to some sort of like stationary. Yeah, so so you still kept it. See, that's we still kept it. We didn't. If you get rid of it, if you have a lapse in coverage, they call it. And I don't know if this is probably the same with health insurance. Maybe if you lapse, or but it it, um really upset me. And I I mean, it's Mm. like you have no control. You call and you're like, what the? Like I was never. You know, I'm the great driver here. I'm paying you guys forever and. Anyways, no. that, that was that was one of my kind of lessons learned. Unfortunately, we didn't run into that. It was maybe it was because we kept our same car. Yep. So we had the yeah dogs and kind of those other aspects. But yeah, it was a it was a fantastic year. It was a very it was a very career affirming, family affirming, you should do life you affirming should, year. You should do a podcast. You're really good at this. Oh, this well, I like, appreciate we've, 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 been going, we've been going an hour, <laughs> oh, yeah. and I, mean, I feel like we just started. We could, we got to do another one of these. Okay, happy to. Anytime. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it. Um, glad it, yeah, glad it met you through uh, Becky Holt. Her podcast was really good too. Yeah, she did a great job. It was fun to hear her perspective and. She's just been a really insightful leader for a long time who I've oftentimes said, Becky, help me understand this or that. And you know, as a physician, we're not really trained in thinking about how hospitals work and how policy works and how statute and regulation work and how the government works. I mean, those just aren't part of our traditional training, but they're all incredibly important. It's like any, any, it's like any career you go to, you know, engineer, or, you know, accountant or doctor or lawyer, you know, and then all of a sudden you work for this big and then, all you, you know, people aren't trained on the maybe the business side or the bureaucratic side. And then you have to f- you figure out, wow, there's a whole different thing element here that I didn't you know, want to get into, but sometimes you have to get into it to make real change. Yeah. My dad always said, you know, his favorite thing about medicine was how much he got to learn on a regular basis. And I told him the other day he should have gone into state government because you get to learn even more. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I have a friend who's a teacher and they've gotten more involved in the administration, administrative side. And they're like, oh man, I, if somebody would have told me this is what I was going to like have to get, you know, not excited about because I want to teach. Right. I, I mean, I love it. I feel like it's an incredible honor. Um, you know, I felt like kind of Alice in the Looking Glass. I'd been knocking on the glass. Like, I've got some ideas. I think we can make Hi. some change. Hi. And Can I come I in? Suck through the hole. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot bigger than I thought. And that's a lot smaller. And that's a different color. But it's been a, just a eye-opening, fun experience. And I just, I really love thinking about how do we become healthy and well. And it's a great honor to be here. Well, I want to thank you for coming in, Dr. Ann Zinks, Chief Medical Officer for the state of Alaska. Thanks. And Bonnie? Yeah. Thanks my, for having me. My, uh, telling us to get our flu shots. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to get one. You'll have to, I'll have to relent. And, and I'll have to, but I'll, if, if I do it, I have to do like a, like a Facebook Live, really go to the full. We can do it with Walgreens. you. Yeah. No, the other day I had dinner with my friend. Um, we were actually talking Talk about a little close. Oh, the HPV vaccine, actually. Another oh, yeah. That's not, yeah. Cancer about that a lot more now. Vaccine. And she said she hadn't gotten it. And I was like, it was 8, 830 at night. 
I drove her to Walgreens. I was like, we're going to get this. I'm going to help you through because she was scared of the needle. Very proactive. And I like went to the counter and I was like, she needs her HPV (laughs) vaccine. And I held her hand and she got it done. So we could help you. We can help you out. You're the the ladies to take take care of me. I've got experience. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for (laughs) both coming in and uh, we'll do another one of these. Okay. Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.